still listening to the valley labor report my name is jacob morrison my co-host is uh adam keller we are alabama's only union talk radio show and uh this is overtime overtime is the second half of our program where we are online only where we are free from the shackles of the fcc censors and um yeah Really great stuff. Looking forward to our conversation with Sean Orr, uh, co-chair of, D- of Teamsters for a Democratic Union, about what's next for UPS Teamsters. Uh, we're going to take some calls after that. Um, looking forward to that as well. First up here in overtime, uh, Adam, you've got some cool news on Medicaid expansion. Talk to us about it. Yeah, I'm always down to talk about Medicaid expansion. It's an issue I'm passionate about, and uh, I've got some news to report. And so... You know, this is an issue that affects working class folks across Alabama. And first things up uh, is from Cover Alabama Coalition. And I wanted to point out this new press release they put out this week. Medicaid expansion, a proven solution to help Alabamians join, stay in the workforce, according to a new report. Uh, So Medicaid expansion is a proven solution to help people join and stay in the workforce. A new report from Community Catalyst Spotlights. States that have expanded Medicaid have seen a greater increase in labor force participation among people with incomes below 138% of the poverty line. More, they've seen a greater increase than states like Alabama that have not expanded. And I think that's really relevant considering some of the conversations we had recently about our governor, right? Governor Kay Ivey said that people needed to get off their fannies uh, and join the workforce. Well, here's more evidence that Medicaid expansion can help people join and stay in the workforce. You know, policy policymakers' refusal to expand Medicaid has left nearly 300,000 Alabamians in the Medicaid coverage gap, where they earn too much to qualify for Medicaid, but not enough to afford private insurance. You know, the lack of coverage hits people of color in Alabama especially hard. Alabama Rises Cover Alabama campaign director Debbie Smith said every Alabamian should be able to get the medical care they need to survive and thrive. Removing financial barriers to health care would make our workforce more robust and more productive. It's time for Alabama policymakers to close the health coverage gap and invest in a healthier future for our state and for our people. Alabama is one of only 10 states where workers cannot access quality, affordable health care due to limited Medicaid coverage. Almost half of Alabama residents in the coverage gap are people of color, and 60% live below the poverty line. And I think that's worth teasing out, right? The, the, 
racism and oppression in this state and in this country. Um, we talked, you know, with Blair Kelly earlier this morning about the black working class. And um, so, you know, almost half of Alabama residents in the coverage gap are people of color. Almost half of Alabama residents are not people of color. Right. So that's a big disparity. Nearly half of Alabama workers do not get employer sponsored health insurance. The new report from Catalyst found. And that really is big. Nearly half of Alabama workers do not get employer-sponsored health insurance. And there used to be a time where fully paid employer health care was a standard in this country, right? There, there are folks who remember that, folks who experienced that. And here we are in the state of Alabama in 2023, nearly half of workers do not get health care through their job. So that forces tens of thousands of Alabama families to make tough decisions, either to forego needed health care or take on thousands of dollars in medical debt. When Alabamians are delaying the, the care and treatment they need, that hurts their productivity and their well-being. And the need for expansion is especially urgent right now as state officials unwind COVID-19 pandemic-era Medicaid policies which is leaving about 61,000 Alabamians at risk of losing their Medicaid. Without Medicaid expansion in the state, many more individuals and families will be left with no options for affordable health coverage. Closing Alabama's coverage gap could create an average of 20,083 new jobs per year and have an estimated positive economic impact of $11.36 billion over the next six years. All right, 20,000 jobs. How many economic development projects do we see politicians brag about that can even compare with those numbers? Over $11 billion in six years in economic impact? I mean, that is a huge stimulus. And Medicaid expansion would be one key solution to improving workforce participation rate across the state, which... Again, the governor has made a big deal about, uh, big business has made a big deal about, a lot of the bosses and politicians are talking about workforce participation rate, right? They claim nobody wants to work anymore. They claim they're having trouble finding workers. Okay, well, as we've talked about on this show before, and we'll continue to talk about on this show, folks have to be healthy, right? Folks have who have illnesses, who have disabilities, who have needs for medication, needs for regular treatment by doctors, right? They need that. And there are some folks who are unable to participate in the workforce fully because of lack of health care. And because the Medicaid restrictions are so severe in Alabama, you basically can't work and receive Medicaid. So it puts people in a real bind. Healthcare in America is a racket. It's far too expensive for far too many people. But here is one policy solution that is so mild, so modest, so moderate, so easy to do, where we could help about 300,000 of our neighbors here in this state. So I wanted to point out that study because it really, you know, connects with the rhetoric we've seen about labor participation 
Uh, and this comes about a month after another study, this one issued by the nonprofit think tank, the Milken Institute. And this one determined Alabama has the highest rate of mothers dying from pregnancy-related issues in the country. From Walisha Morris's AO.com article, Milken Institute's Associate Director of Health Economics, Dr. Catherine Sachs, one of the report's authors, said from 2018 to 2021, 150 Alabama mothers died. It's important for people to know Alabama is really the heart of the crisis, Sachs said. So it starts at home. People really need to start thinking about proven policies to improve these statistics and work on making them happen in Alabama. Alabama's infant mortality rate is also one of the highest in the United States. She said states that haven't expanded Medicaid tend to have higher rates. Alabama is one of 10 states that hasn't expanded Medicaid, which would provide care for more mothers during and after pregnancy. So here's yet more evidence of the abysmal state of health care in Alabama, a state that is supposedly governed by pro-life family values. Yet more evidence of how Medicaid expansion can save lives, improve lives, save hospitals, increase workforce participation, create jobs, save costs, and produce a massive economic impact that far outweighs the average economic development project that politicians love to brag about. Our politicians love to bribe companies to locate in Alabama, you know, with the promise of hostility to unions, low wages, lax regulations, and generous subsidies and incentives. And the politicians love to then brag to us about what a good, good great thing that, you know, great thing that that is. It's all fantastic news, and we're all supposed to be excited about it because of the job creation. Well, Medicaid expansion would create 20,000 jobs in Alabama, and that's across the state, from the shoals to the wiregrass, from the beaches of Baldwin County to the mountains of DeKalb County. So for those reasons and many more, I've been pushing our labor movement in Alabama to take a stronger stance on behalf of the 300,000 working-class Alabamians who stand to gain directly from Medicaid expansion, and on behalf of the entire Alabama working class, they would benefit from the healthier, more prosperous Alabama that Medicaid expansion would bring. In July, I brought a resolution to my local union, IATSE 900, which was adopted by the general membership. We formally endorsed Medicaid expansion, joined the Cover Alabama Coalition, called upon our elected officials to take action, and called upon other unions to follow our lead. In August, I came to the North Alabama Labor Council seeking similar support, and I'm proud to report the council has joined the Cover Alabama Coalition and the fight to expand Medicaid in this state. In response to the IATSE 900 resolution, which I mailed to Governor Ivey, she did write me back yesterday. She says she's giving it, quote, serious consideration, uh, but that she's concerned about how to pay for it long term. I certainly hope that the governor is giving it serious consideration, given how many years we've been fighting this fight, given how many of our neighbors have suffered and even died as a result of Alabama's inaction. And on the topic of cost, it's worth mentioning that this has been studied extensively. Between the generous but time-sensitive extra federal <clears throat> dollars available, the cost savings it would bring in various other areas of the budget, 
and the significant revenue from its economic impact, there's every reason to believe that Medicaid expansion will more than pay for itself in the long term. That's not just me. That's our state universities. That's the economists, the experts who've done the math and studied this issue. And the evidence is overwhelming that Alabama can easily afford this long term. And that's before we even get into the budget priorities and the fact that we never ask how we'll pay long term for the massive transfers of wealth to corporations. There's pork spending that could be redirected. And of course, there's always plenty of ways we could raise revenue in this state. Though again, according to all the facts we have available, it won't even be needed for Medicaid expansion. If anything, we can't afford not to do it. So I'm really proud to see my union, IOTC 900, as well as my CLC, the North Alabama Labor Council, join this fight, a fight that disproportionately impacts the working poor of this state. The cooks, the cashiers, barbers, drivers, mechanics, stagehands, and hundreds of thousands of working class folks who just make too much to qualify for Medicaid, but not enough to get the real insurance they need. Obviously, most of our union members are not directly impacted, as most have employer health care negotiated in their union contracts. But as we've talked about today, the labor movement has always sought to raise the standard for all working people. This is such a no-brainer policy solution that will bring us a little bit closer to a better Alabama for all. And I believe it's important that the labor movement add our voices to the chorus of voices demanding Medicaid expansion. The more voices we add, the louder we are. And it's going to take more and more public pressure, more and more people power and citizen engagement to push Alabama's leaders to do the right thing. We can't sit back and hope they do it. We know how that goes. We have to keep fighting. So I encourage everyone listening, take a minute, participate in Cover Alabama's week of action that they're running right now. You can take 60 seconds, contact your elected officials. Take a few more seconds to share the post on your social media. Take a few minutes to have conversations with family, friends, neighbors, or coworkers about this issue and get them engaged in this fight. And you can speak at your next union meeting about this issue and encourage your union to join us in the Cover Alabama Coalition. I'm happy to help you with that, so hit me up if you want resources or sample language or just want to talk about it. Uh, but I really just encourage everyone who is listening, who is in Alabama, uh, follow Cover Alabama, get involved in this. Uh, I'm hearing that we are closer than ever to securing something. Um, we'll see, you know, the governor said serious consideration. So we need to definitely ramp up our voices and, and make sure we're heard. Yeah. Thanks for that update, Adam. And, uh, from your mouth to God's ears, uh, we'll get Medicaid expansion in this, uh, in this legislative session <clears throat> or something quite close to it. So, uh, let's go ahead and bring on our next guest, Sean Orr. Sean Orr is a UPS Teamster and co-chair of the Teamsters for a Democratic Union. He joins us live now. Sean, thanks for taking the time to talk to us this morning. I really appreciate it. Hey brother, how are you guys doing? Doing great. Doing great. Um, so, you know, by now, uh, we know, everybody knows that's listening, presumably, that the UPS contract has been ratified, and it was ratified genuinely overwhelmingly by the membership. More people voted 
on this than have ever voted in a UPS contract referendum, and more people voted in favor of it than have ever voted in favor of a UPS contract. So this is genuinely historic support for a contract at UPS. And, um, and but, you know, I mean, the reason for that is, is that it's, it's a pretty damn good contract, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, this contract really is the product of uh, at least a five-year-long fight uh, at UPS. I mean, uh, almost all of the things that we saw get resolved in this deal are things that we, uh, us rank-and-file activists and militants on the job, have been fighting for uh, since this last contract was imposed on us in uh, 2018. Um, So... You know, really, it's a contract that we can own. You know, the 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 good, bad, and the and the indifferent. Those are all things that, at the end of the day, it's in there. We got this much because uh, we we put up a, a real big fight at UPS. We built a movement. We involved as many of our coworkers as possible, uh, and I think that we really moved the ball down the field. Um, some of the things are stuff that we did not expect to win, short of a strike. Uh, yet we did. Uh, we got rid of mm. a two-tier uh, driver classification uh, without a strike. I can't think of the last time uh, any union was able to eliminate a two-tier system short of a strike, even with a strike. Maybe they make a dent in it. We were able to eliminate that. Uh, we were able to get air conditioning and all new vehicles starting in January. Um, I've got coworkers of mine who are package car drivers have worked at UPS for 30 years and they never imagined, they never, you know, believed it was possible that we would get that. Yeah, we did. Um, and I, you know, a lot of these demands, like I said, were things that we imagined would require a, a strike to, to get out of a company like UPS. Uh, yet they, they started caving to our demands at the table and we got this TA that we did because we were a credible strike threat. They knew that we were serious about, about walking out and hitting the streets uh, if these demands weren't met. Uh, and so, you know, at the end of the day, this is something that I think we can really own and be proud of. And it's a good base to build off of uh, for the fights ahead. And, you know, a big portion of our conversation is going to be about the the fight ahead. You know, what's next? What What is the contract enforcement, uh, you know, going to look like? How can people get involved? But just to look in the rearview mirror for uh, another few seconds, um, you know, can you mentioned that this is at least a, a five-year fight? You know, a there was also a big vote no campaign in 2013, is my understanding at UPS mm-hmm. uh, that was led by TDU, and, uh, and and so a lot of it can even be traced back to then. And and you know, I mean, even in in some cases, you can trace it back to you know the <laughs> the 70s and 80s, uh, the formation of the TDU, uh, the implementation of one member one vote. And all that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, we don't have to go back quite that far. But can you talk to us about some of the organizing that Teamsters for a Democratic Union has done to bring the Teamsters Union to this point where they were able to launch a credible strike threat? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, depends on where we want to get started with things. But I do think that, uh, you know, TDU played a very pivotal role in getting this contract across. you know, Teamsters for a Democratic Union, we were formed decades ago, uh, and really like our base as, as a reform uh, group was uh, mostly in, in freight and some other industries. Uh, but as the Teamsters have changed, so have TDU. 
there's a lot of us who are involved uh, in TDU that work at UPS now. And uh, that's really, you know, kind of goes back to the 90s and the, uh, the big contract fight and the strike that happened in 1997 under uh, President Ron Carey. Um, but this kind of current moment, it's like you said, I, you know, there was uh, 2018, that contract uh, fight, 2013 contract. Uh, you even go uh, previous to that to 2008. And at every single moment, you know, the, that contract fight sort of served as a catalyst for a bigger movement and a bigger change in our union in, in a subsequent period. So let's take 2013, for example, where uh, TDU uh, led a, a, a vote no movement uh, on the UPS contract. Uh, you know, we were part of a big movement of, of workers, a growing movement of workers that were tired of concessions uh, at UPS uh, under Hoffa. Uh, and while the contract was uh, ultimately uh, ratified, uh, there was a big fight. Uh, it was a lot closer than the leadership would have liked. Um, and it signaled that there was a lot of discontent among the ranks. And you hop forward uh, a couple of years to the international election in our union um, in 2016. And again, people did not think that there was uh, that big of an appetite for change. Uh, you know, at the international convention of our union the year prior, there's only a handful of delegates that supported the reform slate uh, that was uh, pulled together by TDU. Yet that slate in the 2016 election for the entire International Brotherhood of Teamsters came within a few thousand votes of winning the whole damn thing. Mm -hmm. That was a huge marker. And that was taking the energy, the rank of file militancy out of 2013 and using that as sort of a driving force out of UPS and into the entire union uh, to change our union, to make it more democratic, more militant, more beholden to the membership. Uh, and, and, the, and the body that made that happen was TDU. It was TDU activists at UPS and in the broader union that built out that movement. Now that similar formula happened in 2018. Uh, you know, that contract fight, uh, uh, you know, uh, Hoffa, our, you know, our own union uh, proposed uh, a two-tier wage system for package car drivers. Um, they didn't want part-timers to make uh, up to $15 an hour until by the end of the contract. Bunch of stuff that we shouldn't have agreed to. There was a big vote no movement, again, organized by TDU. And this time the vote no movement won. We voted that contract down. But because of a constitutional loophole that was never utilized before, Hoffa uh, imposed that contract upon uh, the membership. Um, and that uh, that that you know that imposition really kind of marked the end of his career running the IBT, and it was that momentum and that militancy that then was the driving force three years later for the 2021 International Electionary Union, where we did see uh, change take over at the top of the union with the O'Brien Zuckerman slate, uh, the Teamsters United slate uh, that TDU is a part of, um, and that's how we kind of got to the moment we're in today. Everything kind of built off of each other. Um, you know, the rank and file militancy in a specific shop, then feeding a broader militancy and a broader desire for uh, union democracy in our entire international union. What was it that you think um, <clears throat> created that appetite among the membership uh, for greater democracy change militancy? Um, uh, created the appetite that would cause them to vote for a reform slate to lead the international union um, and, and to vote down a contract in 2018? 
I think that, uh, you know, I, I, there's a lot of factors that led into that. Um, you know, at UPS specifically, just talking about that specific situation, um, you know, a lot of the high seniority uh, uh, workers there, they were 97 strike vets. You know, they went through the 1997 strike. They knew what it was like to go all in to win as much as you can against an employer like UPS. We won a great deal. And we saw every subsequent contract after that uh, more be given back to the company, more concessions from the union. And, and, you know, but you don't lose that militant spark. Once, once workers get a taste for that kind of a fight, they, you, you don't forget it. You learn those lessons from that and that stays right. with you. Um, so there was always that sort of, uh, you know, people on the shop floor knew that things did not have to go this way. Yet mm. it was sort of, a, you know, it took a while to build that sort of uh, consensus among, among the ranks that, you know, we don't have to accept this. We don't have to sell for less. We can change things. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the 2018 fight really was a big catalyst for that. Um, and seeing uh, what it was like to work under, you know, a contract that was imposed on us, you know, with this 22-4 driver classification with a number of other things that we just didn't want to agree to. That's, you know, it's a five-year contract. That was a, that's a long time to sit with something that you're unwilling to mm -hmm. accept. Um, and I think obviously getting into uh on top of that, you get the situation with COVID and the pandemic and, you know, realizing that we are these essential workers that allow uh, through our labor for UPS to make uh, almost $100 billion in revenue last year, over $13 billion of that in profit. Uh, you know, this isn't a company that can plead poverty. This isn't a, a company that mm -hmm. can say, you know, the competition's coming for us. We're, we're going for broke. You know, UPS is as much an institution inside the U.S. economy as the railroads are. It's it's not going anywhere. It's got this incredible amount of uh, of, of, of institutional strength and uh, uh, this kind of key chokehold in the U.S. economy. And we know that. You know, we we work in it. Um, I think that realizing that we didn't have to accept this anymore. We don't have to sell for less. Uh, and realizing our, our 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 true worth. I think that. All of that really did feed into this moment. Um, and you bring into that the memories of 1997, knowing that we can fight this company, knowing that we can get more out of it than we had been. Uh, and all of that really built on top of each other, I think. So the contract is ratified now. Um, you know, like I said, overwhelmingly, uh, really uh, just a huge amount of support from the members. And uh so, Sean, that means that, you know, everybody can just kind of like disengage, stop going to union meetings, uh, go to brunch for the next five years and, uh, <laughs> you know, just just let loose. Right. Oh, yeah, that's exactly what that means. No, absolutely not. <laughs> no, we've oh, got. Come uh, on, Sean. I know. I know. I would love to. I would love to take some time off. <laughs> but, you know, um, a, a contract fight is never an end all game. You know, there's always more that needs to be done. There's always more that's left on the table. There's always things that need to be built upon. Um, and we definitely got some more initiative than we, than we had uh, previously. I think workers on the job really took the initiative in this contract fight. We defined the terms of what this, of, of what our union was going to be advocating at the table. Uh, and we defined the terms on, of, of what the company had to accept if they wanted to avoid a strike. Now, uh, 
that's not fixed. You know, that's not a fixed position, right? Like, you know, on, on the shop floor, somebody's always got the initiative. It's either us workers or it's the company. And if we're resting on our laurels, think, wow, man, we got this. Like we, you know, mm. king of the hill, we won this spot. Uh, guess what? Tomorrow the company's going to knock you out of that. They're going to pivot. They're going to they're going to come swinging from a different area. We have so, to constantly. Sean, be- now you're you're telling me that that it's possible that UPS would violate a contract that they agreed to. Yeah, I, I they definitely would, especially one that they didn't want. You know, um, I think that. Uh, there's a lot of things there in this new contract that uh, we're going to, you know, the company's not going to enforce this contract on us. We're going to enforce this contract. We always have. Uh, and we're going to have to do that uh, every single day for the next five years. Uh, militant contract enforcement on the job. That's what myself and thousands of other uh, rank and file militants are going to be focusing on these next five years. Militant what does that enforcement look like? of this what, contract. Yeah. What what does that look like exact, exactly? Day to day. What what you know, what are you going to be doing and, and what should members uh, across the country be doing to make sure that, that, you know, uh, that UPS does follow the contract? Because even though, you know, it would be great to live in a world where um, everybody was a good faith actor and that when companies agreed to a contract, they wouldn't violate the contract and, and, you know, uh, uh, do everything that they can to undercut workers, but that's not the world that we live in. And, and we know that companies will do that. So wh- what are you going to be doing and, and what should UPS teamsters across the country be doing to make sure that, uh, that all of the gains that were won in this contract um, are actually realized by the workers. So I think the first thing that everybody's got to do, all the militants got to do and all the activists on the job have to do is they have to go over uh, what we won in this contract with as many of their coworkers as possible. Walk through it line by line, you know, especially the things uh, that, you know, not the dollars and cents, not the wages that we won, but more of the contract language that we won and the contract language that we currently have. Get that out as much as possible and get as many people involved in enforcing that on the job as you possibly can. Because UPS, just like any other workplace, is the exact same thing, a supervisor, you know, they want to do something, right? A manager wants mm-hmm. to do something. They know it's against a contract. They look around. They don't see a steward in sight. They're like, well, there's no steward. There's no union here. So I can just kind of do whatever I want. And mm-hmm. they'll have supervisors do union work. Uh, they'll violate people's seniority. They will uh, violate our safety language in the, in the workplace. They'll violate people's eight-hour requests or nine-five requests, whatever that is. And they just think, well, no steward, no union, right? We need to change that culture on the job. We need to demonstrate that the entire membership are the union and that any member can enforce this contract. It doesn't have to be a steward. It doesn't have to be a local officer. It can be any member of this union. And that comes down to uh, making sure that our work's protected, that supervisors are not doing it. Uh, It comes down to making sure that everybody who is scheduled to work is working, that the company is not just sending people home. Uh, That comes down to enforcing our seniority rights on the job seniority prevails in all circumstances uh, and i think we need to we need to take that phrase and we need to run with it as far as we possibly can mm. um, there's a lot of different things that we're going to have to, uh, here that uh, i think we need to build off of i mean for drivers we got this uh, new changes to our eight hour request language you know I, with us drivers we don't get a you know a limit to 
our overtime outside of the uh, federally mandated DOT hours of a 14 hour day. So you, they can work you up to 14 hours, right? Um, but as drivers, we can put in a request for an eight hour day where they schedule you just to work for eight hours and they violate it all the time. Uh, but we got a little bit of stronger language in here now. Language that, in my opinion, means that we can take some work off of our trucks and guarantee that AR day ourselves. Mm. Now, all of that stuff is just, you know, words on a piece of paper <clears throat> until it's put into practice. Uh, and I think we have to go about setting the standards and setting a new precedent of what is going to be uh, allowed in this contract. Because uh, that's going to give us just, you know, the, the biggest amount of room possible. And the company's not, the company's going to go into work uh, expecting, you know, everything to be the same. They're mm -hmm. not going to uh, tell their supervisors and their managers, hey, here's all the new changes in the contract, stick to them. They're not going to do that. It's business right. as usual. They're going to just act like nothing happened. And if they're acting like nothing happened and we act like nothing happened, guess what? Nothing probably happened. This contract mm -hmm. didn't really matter. We have to go and we have to put the work in of actually enforcing this on the job and building off of it because there's a lot more ground to cover uh, than what we just got in this most recent round. And we have to be prepared and positioned to, to win all that we can over the next five years. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, that's all great stuff, uh, Sean. Is there anything else that you think is, is important to talk about uh, regarding the, uh, you know, the UPS Teamster contract and enforcement in this fight uh, before we uh, move on to our next topic? Yeah, I mean, the only thing that I, I would add to that is that, you know, we do have a lot more work to be done at UPS. Um, I think that we've demonstrated something. We learned something this most recent round, which is, you know, we went into this uh, contract fight with a bunch of demands, mostly around pay stuff, right? We want to get rid of a two-tier wage system. We want all drivers paid the same. We want part-timers to get a big pay increase. We want to get an extra paid holiday or two. It's a lot of pay stuff, right? I mm -hmm. And, you know, we went into this expecting you know, uh, to, to really hit a wall, right? And probably have to go and strike over it. Yeah, we didn't. Uh, the company TA'd a lot of our demands. They TA'd eliminating a 22, uh, the 22-4 classification, our two-tier driver system, day one of this contract. That's kind of crazy. Uh, they TA'd the AC and trucks. They, we got a significant uh, pay increase for part-timers. Um, I think that we learned something. We learned that UPS is willing to pay a lot of money to avert a strike. Mm. Um, and those were the demands that we brought to the table. We brought a bunch of demands around, around money and around getting a bigger slice of the pie. I think that uh, what we need to do next go around is we need to get a bigger slice of the power mm. on the job. We, you know, we, we, we got paid, but the company is gonna still be violating our contract. More importantly, they're gonna be violating our rights as human beings on the job. They're going to be forcing us to work. They're going to be dictating to us. They're going to be telling us what to do. Uh, I think that we need to get more out of the basic assertion of human dignity on the job and asserting it on the spot, not you know filing a grievance and waiting for that to get resolved six months from now, you know, but contract on the spot enforcement. Um, I think there's a lot that we can build off of toward that. I think we started getting a little taste of it with this contract fight, um, but you know, that's that, that you know, the questions of uh, human dignity, I think, are going to go on past this. Um, I'm really inspired by what the UAW folks are fighting for. I think 
uh, you know, when I heard uh, their demand around uh, four days of work with five days of pay, I was looking mm. around like, damn, why didn't we think of that? That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I think there's a lot to be built off of. And uh, this kind of new new uh, moment we're coming into with a labor movement is going to serve a lot of inspiration for myself and my coworkers. Absolutely. Um, well, that, that, that that's, uh, that's all great, Sean. I, I really appreciate that. Um, the other reason that I wanted to talk to you today is that, um, you know, for those of you who don't know, Sean is a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. He is also on DSA's Labor Commission's Steering Committee. Uh, so, you know, not only is Sean like quite literally a card-carrying socialist, uh, you know, he puts in work in the organization, right? And we're a, as a union radio program, we talk to workers and union members really across the political spectrum. Um, we've had conservative union members and liberal union members, and also, you know, we've had other socialist union members on. Um, and socialists have a really, really, you know, uh, they played a large role in uh, uh, the history of the labor movement. And so, you know, we want to talk to socialists today that are in the labor movement, and socialists absolutely are in the labor movement today. In fact, uh, one of the people on the reform slate that won in the UAW, Region 9, uh, the Region 9 director is a member of DSA, right? Brandon Mancia? Yeah, 9A, Region 9A of uh, the UAW, yep. And so, you know, the, these are these are people that are in the movement. And so it's important to, you know, it's important to to talk to socialists, I think, and and be able to be willing to work with them and be in community uh, with them in the labor movement. And so, you know, Sean, tell us, what does socialism mean to you? So, I mean, for me, socialism is all about uh, workers being able to control our own lives. I, I, I think that. Uh, you know, right now uh, on the job, right? Like, you know, putting myself in, in my shoes as a steward, right? My day every day going to work, besides working for the company, is representing the members, filing grievances, enforcing our contract, right? And I think any steward will will probably, you know, find, find some truth in this. But the majority of the things that my coworkers come up to me about and our questions of... Uh, they're not things that I have answers for in the union contract. It's it's mm. stuff like, hey, I've got an issue with the supervisor because they refuse to look me in the eye, mm. or hey, I uh, you know, I'm getting a warning letter from my attendance because I wanted to go to a family's wedding, uh, or it's you know what they just constantly load my truck with more and more work, and you know what I'm tired. I want to I want some time off. I want to go see my family. I don't want to keep doing this job. Uh, you know, I want to work, I want to make money, but I also want to live, right? And all of those are things that go beyond what our contract fight, uh, what our contracts can do. But all of those are things that every single working person in this country, in the world deals with. That level of alienation, that sense that, you know, I'm a human being, but for as long as I'm on the clock, I don't get treated like one. I'm treated like a machine. I'm expected to just work and do this and do that and do what I'm told. You know, I, I hear all the time I live in a democracy yet for the time that I'm on the clock, there's no democracy to speak of whatsoever. Mm. Um, and I think that that basic sense of alienation, that, that, that feeling of like, you know what? Like, I just wish I could act 
and be treated more like a human being uh, for the entirety of my existence, not just for the time when I'm home, when I'm off the clock, when I'm not at work. That's to me uh, what being a socialist is all about. It's about taking that, that, that truth, that reality uh, that all of us workers face and building a movement off of it and trying to build a society that answers that question, right? That, that basic question of how can I be a human at all hours of my existence, not just when I'm off mm. the clock. Um, I think that the, I, the dream of having workers control over, over the workplace and over broader society, to me, that's, that's what I, I wanna see in my lifetime. And that's what I think we need to see uh, for ourselves, for our planet, um, and uh, for future generations. How did you become a socialist? Were you, uh, you know, something of like a red diaper baby or was there a, uh, a oh, sort no. of transition? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, um, well, I, I, it was more uh, like experience, I guess. So, you know, mm. I grew up in Wisconsin. I grew up in Milwaukee. Um, you know, uh, this, you know, just another industrial city, Rust Belt, you know, that had this big industrial base for a long time and it was all unionized. And then, because it was all unionized, the companies all pulled out. They all moved down south. They all moved to other parts of the mm. world. Um, and the city was kind of left hollowed out. Um, but I came up out of, you know, in, in that, right? And, you know, growing up in a city where you, uh, you look around and things, you can tell, like, things once were pretty good, but they're not anymore, you know? Uh, it's like, wow, these are a lot of, like, nice houses that are around here, but they're all dilapidated. They're falling down wow, this was a huge factory. There must've been a lot of people who worked here, but it's totally abandoned now. And it has been for 20 years. Um, kind of look around and you realize things were better maybe in the past than they are now. And then you, in a city like Milwaukee, you read about that past and it's like, oh, there was a huge labor movement in this city that, uh, that made sure that people had a high standard of living and that you know they only worked eight hours a day and they had a lot of downtime. That's why we have all these great public parks everywhere is because, you know, people were able to go and spend those time in those parks. Oh, wow. Look, this city for 50 years was run by uh, the Socialist Party. We had a socialist government in Milwaukee that um, that built those parks and that built all of these different public uh, recreational facilities where workers and normal people could go and enjoy themselves. Wow. You know, that's that's incredible. And then you look at where we are now and where things are and uh and you know that for me was like pretty radicalizing but i i think really the big push for me came in uh 2010 2011 uh with uh scott walker becoming governor of uh, wisconsin and uh act 10 uh being passed in the state budget which uh barred it removed uh, collective bargaining rights for public sector workers uh me and a lot of other kids my age uh we all went down to our state capital where there was a uprising of uh, workers. Uh, there was people who occupied the state capitol for weeks. Um, I remember um, being out there in February and there was a blizzard and this is Wisconsin. You know, this is a blizzard in our state capitol and there is 100,000 people outside of the state capitol uh, trying to make sure that the people who are occupying that capitol uh, don't get hauled out by the police. Um, mm. This was a really incredible moment uh, and for me, and I think a lot of other uh, Wisconsinites, my generation, it was pretty defining. Uh, you know, coming out of that, you're going to be a socialist for the rest of your life. Mm. 
How does your, you know, socialism inform your work as a unionist and and then vice versa? How does how does your identity as a unionist affect your advocacy for socialism? I think for uh, as a unionist, it keeps me always wanting to push for more, you know, uh, never being willing to settle for less. I think that the. I think that socialism belongs in the labor movement because it gives us a bit of a North star. It gives us a direction. Uh, it, it, it lets us know that we should not and cannot accept the status quo. We need to always be pushing for more coming to us, not just in terms of money, not just in terms of benefits, but in terms of power, in terms of shop floor control. Uh, that for me is a missing link, I think, in the labor movement. We need we need that vision. We need that horizon that we can point to as like, okay, that's where we're going. I think that a lot of union leaders in this country today um, are fine with the status quo. They're good with it. You know, they like their job. They just want to keep everybody hunky-dory, keep the company open and keep the workers fine and, you know, keep the pension from collapsing so you can go retire to a beach, right? Uh, they don't have any vision beyond that. They don't see themselves as belonging to this broader transformational movement of workers, of working class people for social change. Um, and we need to change that. Uh, so um, I think that socialism brings that uh, to the labor movement and we, we need a lot of that right now. Uh, in terms of the flip side of that, I think that uh, a lot of the socialist movement for a long time has been really sort of abstract. Like it's just been, people's thoughts. It's been like, oh, well, mm. what about this? What about that? Oh, you know, mm. I really liked what happened in this one country on the other side of the world 45 years ago. I'm going to just kind of like focus on that. Socialism became more of a historical society and more of a, you know, like a debate club than an actual thing that was rooted and coming out of working class life. Um, so for me, being a union member, being a shop steward, being a worker, that's the basis of how I enter socialism and how I enter the socialist movement. Uh, I think that um, we need to bring what people are actually going through every day. I, for me, it doesn't really matter. Um, it, it really doesn't matter at all what you as a socialist think of the constitution of the USSR in 1936 or who was right or wrong in uh, 1960s China or in 1920s Soviet Union, like that doesn't really matter. I want to know what you think about what's going on with your coworkers at your workplace right now. Mm. We need to root our politics in today. We can't get stuck in the past. We need to think about today to plan for the future. Um, and I think that being, uh, you know, in, in a union, being on uh, uh, in, as a steward, uh, and being, you know, on the shop floor every day, it keeps me rooted. It keeps my politics grounded. And I think that that's going to be a lot better for uh, DSA and for the socialist movement if more socialists uh, feel the same way and do the same. How does your being a socialist affect your ability to perform your union work? Uh, you know, like how do your, you know, fellow union members react uh, to you being a socialist? Does it, does it kind of impede your ability to work with them? Are they hesitant or do they not care? Or, or you know, wh what is that like? I, 
you know, it, it, it's a it's a tough thing because I I think I, I might be a little skewed. I mean, I'm in Chicago. This mm-hmm. is a pretty militant city. Uh, workers in the city are, are 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 used to like people being on the left, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. I talk about being in DSA all the time with my coworkers. Uh, when my coworkers are going through a fight, how I sum it up, I sum it up as a socialist, and they agree with it, you know. Uh, we might not call it socialism right then and there, but I think a lot more of my co- coworkers are socialists. They just don't realize it yet. Um, so I think that my politics speak to people uh, that I work with and, and, and are, are relatable. You know, um, mm-hmm. it's not a it's not a boogie word for most workers of my generation. You know, it, it, it is for obviously the older generation of folks. They might get a little skittish around it, but. You know, I mean, here in Chicago, there's uh, six members of our city council who are DSA members who are open socialists, you know, Um, like I've got uh, my coworkers who their alderman is a comrade, you know, Mm. and they're like, oh, yeah, you're in DSA. Okay, cool. Or, you know, if I if a coworker is like, oh, you're in DSA, what's that? I'm like, oh, yeah, like those guys, AOC. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, Mm. you know, cool. Like it's not. It, it, it's such a different moment than it was even a few years ago, right. especially since I joined the socialist movement. I mean, things are just, I, I think that there's a little bit of a sea change in that. And we got to embrace that. Uh, mm. I don't think, I think that if you act like you're, you have something you should be ashamed of, um, that, you know, that your identity as a socialist, your politics is something that you should be hesitant about with your coworkers. Their, their response to that is like, well, if he's acting like this is something to be hesitant about, Maybe it is something to be hesitant about. People hmm. embrace it and treat it like a normal thing. People get that back, whether they agree with it or not. They're like, well, right, well that's acceptable. That's fine. You know. What What would your message be then to those union members? Uh, you know, some maybe some of the older members in in your local in Chicago, or you know, union member like union members of any age <laughs> in Alabama who are. Uh, who are hesitant about, you know, I mean, even being in the same union as a socialist, much less than being an active member or an officer or leader of some kind. I, I I think my, my message would just be, um, you know, whether, whether you agree with what you think a socialist is or not, uh, there's no political group in this country They'll be on the side of workers until the very end, more than socialists. No matter what our fight is, socialists are on that are in that fight and are a part of it. I know that down um, that down where you guys are at, uh, there's a lot of DSA chapters who have been involved in the fights with uh, the UMWA, mm-hmm. the Warrior Met, um, with uh, Bessemer um, uh, and the Amazon organizing. Um, socialists are people who believe in solidarity. That's what their politics are. It's solidarity. That you go into any union hall in this country, even in the most red parts of the country, uh, and the word solidarity is going to be in that hall somewhere. It's going to be on some sign. It's going to be on some, you know, picket sign. It's going to be on some banner, right? That's what socialism is. It's solidarity. It's a sense Mm -hmm. that all of us workers are on the exact same side as each other, and we just stand on each other's side until the very end of this fight. We're in a fight, whether we like it or not. That fight mm. is against the ruling class in this country. It's against the people that run 
Wall Street that run these big multinational corporations that want to treat us like machines and like animals and work us till the day we die. We as socialists are people that believe that you're a human being. You deserve time off. You deserve to be a free person to live freely in this country and have a, a, a good life, you know? Um, and the only thing that stands in our way is those bastards that call the shots right now. Mm -hmm. So how about we all get on the same side, whatever you want to call it, but it's solidarity at the end of the day. Uh, and it's, it's as much a part of the labor movement. Uh, it's as much a home in the labor movement as anything else. Mm. I'm glad you mentioned that about the Alabama DSA chapters and their work supporting the coal miners. They did a <clears throat> they did a fundraiser that raised a, something like seventeen thousand dollars, I think, uh, for their strike fund. And uh, to my surprise, the leader of the UMWA's uh, Southern Region uh, spoke at the fundraiser. So you know, I mean, that's a you know, kudos to him for for being willing to speak to a socialist organization. Um, you know, it's I imagine it's easy when <clears throat> you're getting a twenty thousand dollar check at the end, but <laughs> but it's still you know, I I appreciated that from him. Uh, so Sean, uh, really appreciate you taking the time this morning. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely, comrades. Good to see y'all. Yep, appreciate you too. You. All right. Uh, so. Adam, let's go ahead and open up the phone lines. And while we wait for people to come in, um, your sisters and brothers in the Stagehands Union have been uh, on the move over the last couple of weeks, and you've got some updates for us. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, IATSE has a couple wins I wanted to report. And, and I say wins, I mean, obviously, these are very early. Um, so I don't want to be, you know, a really predictive, but uh, it's always good news when workers are organizing. Mm. And so that is a win in and of itself, in and of itself I believe. Um, so first up, <clears throat> I wanted to mention that uh, VFX workers at Marvel Studios have filed for an unprecedented union election, or at least it was unprecedented. Uh, but then... Right after Marvel Studios VFX workers filed, uh, the VFX workers at Disney filed, right? And so IATSE has two, uh, two big, big campaigns happening, uh, Marvel VFX, Disney VFX. Uh, and so these are the video effects professionals mm. uh, who are very essential to the entertainment industry. Uh, you know, Marvel and Disney, of course, rely on them heavily. Um, a couple of things I wanted to pull out from the press releases from IATSE. Uh, so again, this is only the second time in history that the VFX professionals have joined together uh, to demand the same rights and protections as their unionized colleagues throughout the film industry. Uh, so Disney and Marvel, it is a history-making event. Um, most folks in the film industry are unionized, but you know this subsection here has not been organized yet. So credit to IATSE uh, for doing that work. Um, just a couple things about the unionizing VFX workers. They're responsible for creating the video effects across the studio's impressive catalog, including you know the live action ad adaptations, right? Imagine uh, how many of these workers were involved in some of these movies like Beauty and the Beast, Lion King, some of these that came out recently over the past decade. 
uh, where there are a ton of video effects. And a super majority, over 80% of the VFX crew members at Walt Disney Pictures signed authorization cards. So, you know, we'll see how long an election takes. It could commence as soon as two to three weeks. Uh, if a majority of these workers vote in favor of unionizing in that election, the studio would be required to begin good faith negotiations for a contract covering these workers as a group. Uh, in the words of Mark Patch, who is an IATSE VFX organizer, Courageous visual effects workers at Walt Disney Pictures overcame the fear and silence that have kept our community from having a voice on the job for decades. With an overwhelming supermajority of these crews demanding an end to the way VFX has always been done, this is a clear sign that our campaign is not about one studio or corporation. It's about VFX workers across the industry using the tools at our disposal to uplift ourselves and forge a better path forward. I really love that. Uh, the unionizing workers are demanding fair compensation for all hours worked, adequate health care, retirement benefits, and more generally, the same rights and protections afforded to their unionized co-workers who are already represented by IATSE. These demands echo the increasingly prevalent calls for improvements across the VFX industry and are corroborated by the uh, VFX Worker Rate and Condition Survey that IATSE published back in March uh, and that we talked to you all about. And so shout out to IATSE, uh, shout out to the visual effects workers at Marvel Studios and at Disney for organizing. Um, you know, it's just been way too long that these folks have been left out more or less. And so it's, it's historic that they are organizing and uh, fighting for a union and uh, just really wishing them all the best. Uh, and uh, I didn't know if you wanted me to go ahead and talk about the video game. Yeah, release. yeah, go ahead. Sure. Uh, j and and just so folks know, uh, if you're only listening, phone number is 844-899-TVLR. It's 844-899-8857. Yeah, so we had some news with IATSE in terms of VFX, but also with the video game industry. Up first was Working Man Interactive Workers. They unite and file for the first game worker union under IATSE's jurisdiction in the United States. So Working Man Interactive is a employer, uh, and the employees there have sought out to unionize with IATSE. It would be IATSE's very first video game worker union. Um, a supermajority of these workers have signed cards indicating their desire to join. Uh, the union did file for a representation election earlier. Uh, about This would be about a week ago. Um, Working Man Interactive is a well-established game studio working with clients like Nickelodeon, Disney, and Nintendo, as well as crafting interactive experiences for museums and community spaces. Despite demonstrable supermajority support amongst the company's workers, manage management declined to voluntarily recognize their union, so the workers were forced to take their case to the NLRB for a formal election. Real shame there. Uh, never forget that companies have the full authority to voluntarily recognize a union. Right? When the workers come together and over half of them sign cards, or in this case, a supermajority signed cards, the employer could do the right thing and save everybody a lot of time and a lot of trouble, and a lot of cost and expense, and they could just recognize the union. 
right? And say, okay, clearly you guys wanted a union. You have a union now. Let's sit down and negotiate. Mm. They could do that. But this video game studio has chosen not to, unfortunately. Um, wanted to mention this quote from junior developer Corey Mori. She shared, as proud as I am about the work we've done over the past few months, I'm far more proud of my coworkers who have come to support the union. I'm so excited to see what the future holds for us now that we have a chance to have our voices heard and respected as equals. Echoing uh, Maury's sentiments, developer Joel Schuert added, We recognize management had gaps that left us, the employees, particularly vulnerable. This kind of communal support instills hope and confidence for the future, and it's an unrivaled feeling. In uniting under IATSE, the workers at Working Man Interactive hope to address and improve the conditions in their workplaces and set a precedent for others in the gaming industry. Project manager Matthew Vimislik believes the union will bring together the diverse range of disciplines within the industry, stating game production is a cacophony of different jobs and disciplines pitted against each other for smaller and smaller pieces of a big pie. I believe IATSE's experiences representing wide swaths of the entertainment industry gives us the best chance of navigating the various needs of our workers and create a sense of solidarity for artists, programmers, producers, and engineers. The IATSE has been moving decisively to organize video game workers as part of the growing demand for representation across all sectors of the entertainment industry. Uh, in June, the union announced its first ever 2023 GameWorkers.org Rates and Conditions Survey, the results of which will be shared in just the next few weeks. And um, on that note, I actually wanted to mention that since that press release, they have come out with the survey results just this Friday, I believe. Uh, and so we, we can dig in that into that more next week. Mm. Um, but I just wanted to, to definitely mention that the survey has come out, uh, but it, that's a really big deal. IATSE getting its first video game workers union. Yeah. Again, you know, the election has to ha happen, and um, considering the company decided to not voluntarily recognize what was obviously a union, uh, we'll see how they conduct themselves during the election. Hopefully no union busting. Mm. Um, we'll see. You know, this is up in New York, uh, for whatever that's worth. Um, maybe that makes a difference. We'll see. Um, but yeah, really proud of my union for the, the good work they're doing in the VFX industry and video games, um, you know, some pockets of the entertainment industry have been left unorganized. And it's really, really important because all workers deserve a contract. All workers deserve a union. And um, yeah, appreciate my union for, for fighting for those workers and wishing them all the best and solidarity in their fights ahead. Yeah, that's absolutely great. Uh, we do have a caller on the line. Um, the caller is from a 740 area code. Sure. So 740 area code. What is your name and where are you calling from? My name is David Thompson. I'm calling from Southern Ohio, local 413. I'm a Teamster, 35-year Teamster, 22-year steward. Dave from I, Southern uh, Ohio. Appreciate you, yep. uh, appreciate you calling in. Uh, what's on your mind? Uh, one point I'd like to make on the expansion of Medicare or Medicaid. Mm. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I live in an Appalachian region. So you see these 
these corporate hospitals, corporate health systems, if mm. you will, they, they invade these these small communities and they they control your local politics. And that's one of the one of the you know in the overall scheme, <clears throat> you want health care for people. And and I have seen it all my life where people will not go to the doctor because they'll go broke. Right. And it's just a, it's a it's a a quick slide downhill from there. Then their mm. health deteriorates. Now they can't work. Now, what do we do? Right. Well, they they disappear from the labor force. But that was the point to Adams. You know, it, it's it's really you got to be vigilant to watch what these healthcare systems do. They will they will invade your entire community mm. and and press their views on the community through through the politics and legislation just something to be aware of i think absolutely well and not only that and and that's a a big issue i I think you know for uh would be a big issue for you know a lot of rural areas in alabama i think you know in, in a place like huntsville or birmingham you know there are enough other interests that you know the hospital won't be able to Com- completely dominate the politics, but uh, but you know, still no doubt they could have a they, they, they are very influential. Uh, but uh, another thing to think about with the hospitals is you know the way they treat their employees generally, yeah. and especially in areas where they are uh, the only employer uh, for you know. Uh, more or less, uh, the only you know real kind of good employer or, or half decent employer, uh, you know, organizations, companies, and hospitals can take advantage of that and try to put workers, uh, try to make workers put up with more than maybe they would if they had other options. Right. And so it's uh, you know the ideal thing for for you know a hospital to have have any public dollars frankly you know state or federal would be that you know they have to abide by you know uh, <laughs> uh union neutrality agreements positive new union ne- right. neutrality agreements um you know and have have strings attached with ha- you know wage rates and things like this right. uh but you know unfortunately we we don't have that that's that's part of it you you when I talk to doctors, they, they that when the when the health systems come in, they are they're, they're rushed. The treatment is rushed. Mm. Yep. You know that you, you see that, and that's you know what you're talking about would help. It's, but it's just like I said, I brought that point up for something you know to be aware of while right. you're mm-hmm. while you're looking at that. I know Alabama is a lot rural, and those those regions they matter. I live right. in those those same types. Now, <clears throat> Sean Orr, his interview, I like that, and I I, I want to touch on the strategy that got the contract mm. for UPS. Sean O'Brien, he 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 really put together an alliance, mm-hmm. and you know he got with with Zuckerman, who had run against Hoffa before. And he got with TDU, and he built those alliances, you know, those common people or common interests. He combined them, and that's what I think made him so strong going into the negotiations. 
and he stayed focused on on the, the goals. Now, to speak on Teamster Mobilize, you know, I know a lot of people were, were pushing the no vote. Mm. And for them, you know, this is not the end. This is just merely the beginning. Take a good lesson. Look at what Sean O'Brien has done in his career. And you can, you know, those people like Jose, people like Audrey, they, they're right. They're good. They have valid concerns mm. for their area. But they can – I don't want them to quit. I want to encourage them. They can build on this and take it and, and become more involved, you know, create those networks like they have and, and mobilize. They, they, mm. they can get things that they were – they felt the contract this time didn't address. Time's on their side, mm. and I know we live in a, in, a, in a society where you push button everything or you slide right or you slide left. Mm. You know, I grew up in the microwave end or time when you push for 30 seconds. It, it takes time. Mm-hmm. Things take time. It, 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 it's an evolution, but you can get there. You can get there. And that's that's really just all the points that I wanted to bring up. I think you do it. I think you got a good show. I like listening to it. Really well, appreciate that, hey, brother. Yeah, really appreciate it. And uh, you know, I I agree with. Um, you know, some of the advice and some of your thoughts about the, uh, the, the coalition building that Sean O'Brien was able to do, you know, the, uh, he, I'm, you know, uh, the local near here is, um, actually had the highest percentage in favor of O'Brien, the O'Brien slate of any local in the country here in North Alabama. Uh, I can't remember exactly what the percentage was. I think it was like 96, 98%. It was wild. Um, and, you know, they're not, and this is not, you know, a knock on them, but they're not a TDU local, right? Right. <laughs> and right. so, so that coalition building was really important. And, and, you know, it's something that uh, Ron Carey, which not to hit, you know, which is again not a knock on on Ron Carey. It's something that he wasn't able to do in '97. He had my understanding is that he had a lot of the old guard working against him in '97. Right. Whereas you know Sean O'Brien was kind of able to uh, to marry a lot of folks to push in the right direction. I think. Well, that's part of technology. You know, social media mm. gets people on the same page. Everybody gets on the on on message, so to speak. Mm. And I, I think that's it's a powerful tool. I know, you know, to to Jose and Audrey with Teams for Mobilize, they they have they've done a good job. Mm-hmm. They've got it. They've got a movement going. That movement can can really pick up speed. Mm. And you know, just being observant. You know, if you're a rank and filer. Be observant in your in your sort, or if you're driving, you know, with your drivers, address the concerns. You know, talk to your stewards. Understand your rights. That's the biggest thing. Understand your rights mm-hmm. in that workplace. Mm-hmm. You know, that's exactly right. But but you can take those concerns and and build on them. You know, if the if the concerns pay, of course you build on that. But there's so much other stuff like the air conditioning, you know, uh, the, these the two tiers. There's so much that can be addressed that wasn't this time, but 
we have a good solid foundation, I think, moving right. forward. And it's just going to take a, everybody, you know, being involved, gathering information, gathering evidence, filing those grievances, getting interpretations. That's that's how that's how it's done. That's how it's done. Yep. So, Dave from Southern Ohio, appreciate the call. Enjoyed it, and thanks for the kind words. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. We'll see. We have another caller on the line from a 714 area code. I believe I know who this is. 714 area code. Uh, what is your name and where are you calling from? Good morning. Buenos dias to todos. Uh, Adam, Jake, buenos dias to you. My condolences goes out to the families and the loved ones of uh, Chris Bagley mm. and Tony Rufus and any worker that's lost their lives for doing uh doing their job and mm. these corporations not having the proper protections whether you're outside or inside you know we shouldn't be dying because th- these corporations and the federal government not giving osha the power that it really needs to kind of enforce these corporations to do the right thing but my mm. condolences go out to them uh, i want to give a shout out to all my uh, 952 brothers and sisters out there, especially those in uh, Laguna and Anaheim, drivers, uh, part-timers, everybody. You guys got a little following out here, so uh, it, it, it's pretty cool to see. And to address that gentleman's point, I've been at UPS for 25 years. My son is barely 14, going on 15. You know, I want to be here for a while. There's a couple more contracts in me to fight for because uh, mm. eventually it should be equal pay for equal work. You know, it, we shouldn't have these these uh, classifications divide us. You know, with we have a pyramid. Like uh, we, you had a, a guest earlier talking about this hierarchy. We we mm. have one in UPS. You know, we got rid of a two tier system for drivers. I'm happy. I'm glad. But replacing one <laughs> with a two tier system for part timers is 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 not good. It's it's you know we I don't know why. We agree to it. It does. Does UPS eventually want to put all part timers in progression? If that's the case, okay. That what's what's going to be the starting point at the progression? Twenty five dollars that go up to thirty dollars by the end of the contract of the next uh, the next go round. If it is, then let's talk about it. But I wish I, I wish one day we could have a UPS Teamster kind of summit. And mm. really just hammer down, okay, what are we going to do? What are we fighting for? Yes, it's, whether you like this contract or not, everybody knows I was opposed to it and I'm eating crow right now. I was completely off. I I forgot the main point and the primary uh, focus when it comes to organizing. It's organizing on the shop floor, the basic one-on-one conversations. Mm. And, you know, we, we probably didn't have enough... Uh, engagement in, in our end and you know i'll take responsibility for that you know but uh when it, this 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 contract we have to, we have to enforce regardless how we feel about it you know i've been mm. walking around the the shop floor telling members about their pay about now we have uh overtime after the six hours to a if you have overtime after the sixth hour you get it and if it's not on your paycheck you let management know so it's going around having those conversations and to instill uh, empowerment, you know, because you engage to educate, to empower the, the rank and file. 
and as in Teamster Mobilize, I'm a rank and file organizer. That you have to have those conversations. You could rely on social media, but social media, you're not looking the member eye to eye and making the connections or hearing mm-hmm. their stories. So you could then in turn tell, okay, this is what this is why we're doing this. So you connect their struggle with the overall struggle. You know, we can't be uh, content with this contract being ratified. We now have to enforce it, and we have to set the set the stage. If this is going to, if this what your guest was mentioning earlier, this is something for uh, something better for the future. Okay, let's let's really start talking about. It. Let's end all progression. There's a member out there in, in uh, North Cal that told me he would love to see a one-year progression. Hmm. And every three quarters, I mean, every three months is basically one progression. So, for example, you go driving, you know, the first three months, you know, you're at $25. The next three months, you're at uh, $27.50 or whatever it may be, right? Because when you're going in driving, you're learning different routes every day. You don't have a a set route. So you're learning on the fly. Hmm. So, and you had a guest earlier talking about, you know, those, those, those buzzwords, skilled labor, you know, right. you get those skills because you're jumping on different routes. Same thing for part-time. We should have, if, we, if we're going to go down the path of having a progression, okay, no more four-year progressions. Let a progression be one year. Because mm. you're jumping, you're, you're moving from trailer to trailer, you know, loading or, uh, or when you're in preload, loading four different, different package cars every day because, you know, Somebody calls in sick or somebody has a vacation, you know, you go fill in because you're at the bottom of the barrel. So you're learning different, different loads, you know, resi load compared to a, 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 a business load, you know, or a, a load that has a lot of bulk, whatever it may be, you know, you're learning, mm. you're, you're learning all these tools, but you know, we've agreed to these four year progressions, which is completely and totally wrong. We should, we should, we need to get rid of them. And for, for teams to mobilize, we're not going anywhere. We're going to mm. still do what we need to do, address the issues that need to be addressed. If that makes us, uh, you know, if, if whatever comes our way, comes our way, you know, because, but we're never going to be, we're never going to stop fighting for the work, for the, for the rank and file and for the working class. Because what affects them in, in, in their shop floor affects, they have other things that affect them outside of it. And it's, it's, time to address both those issues right it's time for our labor unions to to work in collaboration and association with tenant rights organizations mm-hmm. immigrant rights organizations because we those are the issues that affect us it might not affect somebody in in uh, southern ohio but it might affect somebody in southern texas right. or in southern california that probably has some sort of immigration rights or that live in uh in these metropolitan areas where the cost of living is so damn high you know, so we have to we have to attack all those fronts. It's just not attacking the shop floor. That's the priority, yes. But we shouldn't be singular. We should attack the other priorities that affect our membership. So mm. we, if you're a part time, you know of a member that's struggling. You know a member that's living paycheck to paycheck, living in a shelter, in some cases being unhoused. So what are we doing to help them? Twenty one dollars, and it's 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 good, but is it going to be able to buy them a room? when a uh, cost of living for a two bedroom house out here in uh, Anaheim, California is like, I think 2,500, 2,600. So they, they, they can't afford, they, you know, they don't have enough money to, 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 uh, to, to rent a room. 
You know, mm. and then I'm glad we have these combo jobs. I was reading the latest Jacobin uh, article last night at around 11. You know, yes, we create combo jobs, but in the supplements, combos goes by, uh, once again, these hierarchies. goes to existing combo first, drivers in my, in my Southwest, in my, in my supplement. goes to drivers with 15-year seniority and then last part-timers. The part-timers are at the bottom of the barrel. Out there in 705 and 710, it's pretty good that they have like a ratio of, for part-times and full-time. I think it's three to one. I just I think it's three to one for, uh, for every uh, full-timer to part-timer that goes combo. Why don't we Why don't we have that in in all our supplements? Mm. And these supplements too, we have over for part-time. We have overtime at five hours, overtime at six hours. We should put that and codify it in the nationals so everybody benefits. You know, we have to get some of these great languages that these contracts have, these regional contracts, and put them in the national and codify it. You know, because at the end of the day, if we don't take power back from UPS, UPS will be glad to pay the quadruple time. You know, I don't know what the, the what it is for, for five times or six times. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They don't care. They'll pay it. Because why? They still have control over you. Right. You know, regardless of the 9-5s or overtime, as long as they have control of you, they don't care. And it's time that we take back the control. It's time that we say, you know what? I don't want to. I want to go spend time with my family. I want to see my son play basketball. You know, I want to see my mm-hmm. daughter do ballet. I want to turn around this truck and take it back to to the hub and let management figure this out. Because no, I, my my life is precious. You know, but we we need to have these discussions eventually down the road. And to all the workers out there, you know. Solidarity to everybody. If you're struggling to, 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 for for your rights to be recognized at your respective workplace, I stand with you. There is a, a thing called Por Vida right here in Anaheim that the workers, you know, had a had a, a picket line, you know, had a little mm. corner picket line, and I was like, what? I was, you know, it brought brought to, you know made me feel good. You know, mm-hmm. Southern California right now is a hotbed of of labor summer. You know, WGA. Uh, Unite here, eleven, uh, SAG-AFTRA. You know, I'm I'm glad in other uh, little regional uh, picking lines of uh, Amazon out there in uh, Palmdale, DAX8. You know, we we're, we're you know, it's a good time to be in labor movement, but we we have to connect all these struggles. Medieval Times in Buena Park. I want to give them a shout out. They've been holding it down since I think January or February. It's time to connect these struggles. These struggles are not isolated. We're all struggling. These struggles need to come together. Regardless of your Teamster, UAW, mm. uh, Longshoremen, regardless, all our struggles are interconnected. The faster we could recognize it, the faster we could we we could get our respect from these corporations and and get, take some of the power back to ourselves because we, we need it. And thank you, gentlemen, for always having dissenting voices on your show. You know, I'm glad you guys are on. And, uh, you guys are, you guys have a, a little fan base out here in Anaheim. Even my mom likes to see uh, Jake sometimes. She doesn't like the mustache, but she, you know, she has a, a little Spanish term for it, but you know, it is what it is, you know? Yeah. You got, you can't, you can't, you can't, mom, mom can't stop the vibe, you know, but you know, <laughs> can't win them always having me on. No, well, not you know, if you if you understand Mexicans, mom, they're they're a little bit vicious, man. They'll they'll <laughs> grind you into a pulp with all these 
yeah, it's 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 pretty hilarious at times. Trust me, I get the brunt of my mom's uh, vicious uh, tongue at times. So like she said, <laughs> like they say, no tiene pelo en la lengua. She doesn't have hairs in her tongue, so she lets it rip to me, and I'm like, Mom, I'm 47. I don't, you know, but it is what it yeah. is. Yeah, <laughs> gentlemen, gracias. Well, have a great week. Have a great weekend, and all power to the workers. Thanks, brother. Appreciate the call. Um, the you know the I. My, I said maybe two weeks ago on the show that, you know, my grandmother had a stroke and, and, um, one of the, uh, one of the first things, like before she could even actually talk again, <laughs> you know, I was, she was laying down, she was on the hospital bed and, you know, I was kind of leaning over and she touched my face where my mustache was. And I said, you still don't like my mustache? And she shook her head. No. So, <laughs> She said she likes it a little bit better now that I've I've trimmed it up and I don't have the curls. But my wife liked the curls better. So, I like don't you know. said, you can't win them all. Can't win them all. Can't win them all. Um, yeah, so appreciate appreciate Jose's call. We're going to keep the lines open for a little bit longer. 844-899-TVLR. Going to be going a little bit longer today because, uh, folks, there's a lot to talk about with the UAW. That's and right. we can't just not talk about it. We haven't talked about the UAW at all. Yet, but we can't we can't uh, end the show like that. So, um, so we are going to talk about it. The UAW, obviously, they're in contract negotiations with the big three automakers. Uh, Sean Fain is doing weekly updates uh, on the UAW's Facebook and YouTube pages. So those have been fascinating and really enjoyable to watch. He did the most recent one yesterday, and uh, it was my favorite one yet. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I liked. It seems like every week he's kind of ramping up the rhetoric, and you'll see what I'm what I'm talking about uh, in a little bit. I, I kind of cordoned off all of the you know some of the bigger picture rhetorical stuff, cordoned that off to the end. So, but uh, so we're gonna first start with um, how he has characterized you know the bargaining approach by the big three automakers. We gave our economic demands to Ford, GM, and Stellantis over four weeks ago because we knew there was a lot to discuss and we were eager to get down to business. The big three have a simple playbook when it comes to bargaining that can be summed up in three words. Delay, delay, and delay. So a month ago, I sat across from each of the big three CEOs with your national negotiators beside me and I delivered our demands. I told them that if they expected to drag everything out until the final days of bargaining and then try to settle everything all at once, they were setting themselves up for failure. I've told them repeatedly, September 14th is a deadline, not a reference point. So there we go, you know, so uh, not very... Uh not very good news from the big three. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like they're moving. It doesn't. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and, and it's important to note that he gave them the demands four weeks ago. Right. And uh, these companies, they have millions of dollars, hundreds of lawyers, no doubt, maybe even thousands uh, working on this for the companies. And there's a, so there's absolutely no reason that they couldn't have a uh, you know, they, they couldn't be bargaining in 
better faith. They couldn't, you know, there's no reason that they couldn't be doing this. They couldn't be doing this more fast, uh, right. uh, faster than they are. And, um, so, you know, let's see wh- what it, and, and he tells us exactly what happened with GM and Stellantis, uh, here in this next clip. Let's play that. UAW family. I'm sad to report that the big three are either not listening or they are not taking us seriously. We are now 14 days out from our contract expiration and both General Motors and Stellantis have failed to give us any economic counters. You know, there's a pathetic irony to having these companies fixate so much on worker absenteeism and productivity when their top leadership have ditched bargaining and are refusing to buckle down and do the work of actually negotiating a contract. And that bit that he said about absenteeism is is really important, I think, and and worth kind of sitting with because uh, that is something that the big three automakers are trying to hammer in the media. And one of the things that they said was, oh, we've lost $200 million to to absenteeism. And Jonah Furman, communications director for the UAW, he pointed out that $200 million (laughs) is a fraction of 1% of their revenue to absenteeism. Right. So, you know, there's also we have had a pandemic. (laughs) Yeah, there is a, you know, there is a statistical impact Mm. of COVID-19 on your absenteeism rates. I imagine they're not the only employer that has seen higher than average absenteeism. What are they doing to help that? Exactly. I didn't even think about that, but that's exactly right. The last contracts were negotiated in 2019. So this contract has been three quarters of it under COVID. So of course you're going to have higher than average rates of, you know, absent employees. Uh, But one of the reasons, you know, another reason on top of that is because uh, the majority now of big three UAW members are in the second tier. So there are a lot of employees that are only making $16 an hour, no pension, not good health care. Right. So if your job is not is is not, you know, as good as the big three UAW jobs have been in the past. And if your job is really comparable to several other employers in your area, you're obviously not going to be as incentivized to do your best at that job, to give more of yourself to that job. And uh what right. do we call what do we call that when you know when there's a a, a demand and a supply? What what is it that people call that? Something about a market. A market. Huh. But that's that's weird because they are complaining about the results of the market. But aren't these people are the the CEOs of the big three are presumably not socialists, right? Uh no. In okay. fact, uh, quite hmm. the opposite. Hmm. Okay, that's 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 strange. That's a that's a strange thing to be complaining about the market. Yeah. But, uh... <laughs> and, and I got to say, uh, just an example that really comes to my mind is the same situation in the school system here in mm. Huntsville with the privatized mm. support staff. They would always complain that they couldn't find enough custodians and cafeteria workers and security guards and all these other personnel that have been outsourced to temp agencies. 
you know, and it was, you know, this like constant crisis of the absenteeism and the temp agency not sending enough people or the people they send don't don't show up or they don't come back or, you know, you get what you pay for sometimes. And when employers are treating employees like a second tier, well, some employees are going to treat the employer like a second tier employer, right? I mean, that's just common sense. Mm. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of factors there, but I, I mean, I think you're, you're hitting on something there and I think, you know, you, you do have to factor in the pandemic, um, as a big reason why we, you would see some absenteeism issues. Mm. Uh, but to Jonah's point, how big of an issue is this really? Right. You know, how big of an issue is this really? And, yeah. um, you know, it's just a, to me, it's totally shameless to to go weeks without even coming up with a mm. counter proposal, right. uh, and then to gripe and moan about absenteeism. Yeah, absolutely. Four weeks, millions of dollars, hundreds of lawyers on this team, and they couldn't come up with a counter proposal for GM and Stellantis. Were they Ford absent? Come up. Were yeah, they absent? Right. Like, were they being exactly. absent from their job? Ford came up with a counter proposal, so it's not literally impossible. Obviously, because one of the big three did it. We're going to talk about Ford's proposal here in a second. But uh, so this is his response. This is Sean Fain's response to uh, a lack of a proposal from GM and Stellantis. GM and Stellantis' willful refusal to bargain in good faith is not only insulting and counterproductive, it's also illegal. That's why today our union filed unfair labor practice charges or ULPs against both GM and Stellantis with the National Labor Relations Board. Unfortunately, many employers across the country are willing to break the law and incur the meager fines and penalties that result as just the cost of union busting. Mm. While it's important, we always defend our rights and seek assistance from the Labor Board in holding companies like GM and Stellantis accountable. At the end of the day, our strongest line of defense is each other and our ability to take collective action. That's why it's so important that locals across the country continue to organize rallies, practice pickets, and other actions. We need to speak out together with one voice against GM and Stellantis' illegal refusal to bargain in good faith, and we need to be ready to go on strike if necessary. So that is, I mean, pitch perfect. The, uh, you know, the willingness to use every tool available to you to discipline these companies for their, you know, um, bad faith and illegal bargaining practices, but also recognizing, right, and and educating their employee, the, your members, the UAW members that he's speaking to, educating them about the fact that the government is not going to be the ultimate answer here. Uh, because a lot of people will leave it at that. They will say, oh, it's illegal for a company to bargain in bad faith. It is illegal for a company to fire somebody for union organizing, right? And then they'll just leave it at that uh, without explaining to these worker organizers or to their members that uh, the law doesn't mean just a whole lot when the penalties are so little. So the real protection that you're going to have to build to actually protect yourself is worker power, is the ability to withhold your labor, to collectively stand up and fight for each other. It's not the government. Uh, but 
when the government gives us tools, we're going to use them to beat the companies over the head with. And so, you know, I think that's a that's a really a, a pitch perfect um, message there regarding, you know, using the government. And uh, you can imagine that the companies Stellantis and GM were not happy about that. Uh, Stellantis said in a in a statement that uh, they were, quote, shocked <laughs> by the UAW claims that we have not bargained in good faith. This is a claim with no basis in fact. Uh, Stellantis also said it was disappointed that Fain, quote, is more focused on filing frivolous legal charges than on actual bargaining, which is obviously not true because who is it that has been at the bargaining table day and night? It's been the union members. While uh, Stellantis's COO, the guy who put that statement out is the guy that's been in Mexico, right? <laughs> For the last two weeks. Okay. So, I mean, really the, you know, in, in a certain sense, the cojones on this guy is crazy because, um, you know, that's just such a obviously bad faith statement. GM put out something similar. Uh, we heard from Gerald Johnson last week. Uh, the vice president of manufacturing and global manufacturing and sustainability or whatever. He said that the company strongly refuted the unfair labor charge. Quote, we believe it has no merit and is an insult to the bargaining committees. Oh, well, if it's an insult, then that's terrible. We have been hyper-focused on negotiating directly and in good faith with the UAW and are making progress. Well, not reflected in what's written on paper, which is all that matters in contract negotiations. So so that's where we are with GM and Stellantis. They have not offered a contract a, a counter proposal to the UAW's demands and the UAW has filed an unfair labor practice as they should. Uh Ford, however, did actually, you know, they delivered a counter proposal. Whether it's in good faith or not is, you know, that's another question, but there is something on paper that they're presenting. And so, uh before we let Sean talk about what is in um, what's in the proposal, just like he did in his presentation. Uh, it's worth remembering the state of the Ford Motor Company. Let's play that clip. Just as a reminder, we are living in a golden era for the big three. Ford's revenue and profits are surging. Ford made over $10.4 billion in profits in 2022 and is on track to surpass that in 2023. Those are profits created by our hands, our dedication, and our sacrifice. And those profits have resulted in unparalleled gains for company executives and rich shareholders. In fact, Ford CEO Jim Farley has said that Ford is entering, quote, the most promising period for growth in Ford's history. Nearly <laughs> tripling second quarter profits. I mean, that is astronomical. A golden era for the Ford Motor Company here, according to its CEO, right? And so uh, that's the context that you need to take into, uh, take into reading Ford's counterproposal. Let's start with what Ford is proposing with regard to temporary employees. And this race to the bottom has been driven in part by the reliance on an army of permatemps. These are workers who often work seven days a week, 12 hours a day for months on end 
with no commitment from the company to their future. That's why we have demanded an end to the use of permatemps with strong language that would require all temporary workers to be given the opportunity to convert to full-time seniority employment after 90 days. <clears throat> We've also demanded that temps be paid at not less than 85% the top rate, that they receive profit-sharing checks, that they be provided full health care and retirement benefits. Rather than agreeing to our common sense demand of equal pay for equal work, Ford has proposed that there be no cap on the use of temporary workers. The company has proposed that they receive less than 60% of the top wage rate, that they be denied a fair share of the profits that their labor produces, and they be given second-tier health care and no retirement benefits. Worse still, under Ford's proposal, the company would have the right to transition to an entirely temporary workforce over time, and, and we would have no say in this. So let me say that again. The company is proposing the unilateral right to hire as many temps as they want and keep everyone working as temps permanently with no end in sight. UAW family, that ain't happening. So there you go. He is obviously um, not happy with Ford's proposal on temporary employees, as he shouldn't be. I mean, the you know the call to end two tiers of employment has been a really really central uh, demand for the UAW this round of negotiations, and the idea that you're not going to be moving on that at all is um, is wild. Or, or the the status of temporary employees. I'm sorry, we're going to be talking about tiers here in just a second. But yeah, the idea that there there's not going to be any movement on that from Ford uh, in this counterproposal is really kind of astonishing. And you would think that they would be better able to read the room and at least try to do something like what UPS did, because you know there the UPS didn't give away literally every single thing under the sun, but they were able to uh, to you know work and give the union members enough that they didn't feel like striking over what was left. And that's what these companies are going to have to do to avoid a strike. They're going to have to give the UAW such a good contract that the bargaining committee is going to be able to recommend it to the membership. And the membership is going to have to ratify it. Um, and that is, you know, a contract like this is simply not going to cut it. But right. let's come hear... in with concessions. Right. I mean, yeah, yeah. demanding concessions at, in yeah. this economy is just it's really shameful and insulting. So here's uh, what he said that Ford proposed on tears. As you know, we're also demanding an end to tears. Right now, a majority of the big three workers are second class workers. So we've put forward a proposal to bring the eight-year wage progression down to 90 days and to restore retiree health care and pensions for all of our workers. Ford has proposed that tiers continue, which means no retiree health care, no pension, and dropping the wage progression from eight years to six years. UAW family, as I travel the country attending practice pickets and rallies, I've seen a lot of signs, and one of my favorites is everyone, tier one.
That's what solidarity is all about. We will no longer let the companies divide us, and I know we're united in a fight to end tears. So here again, not really much movement on tears. They're willing to go down uh, from an eight-year progression. That is insane to a six-year progression, which is still too high. You know, a four-year progression is really where you're starting to get into the realm of, of reality and, and, and something approaching reasonableness. A uh, four-year progression is what I had in the federal government. But, um, you know, six years, that's absurd. Uh, there's one other thing in the contract that I wanted to highlight from his presentation, then we're going to go through the others, uh, or, or from the counterproposal uh, that I wanted to highlight Sean's comments, and then we're going to go through the others uh, more rapid fire. But let's hear uh, what Ford came back with on raises. That's why we went to Ford and proposed a double-digit wage increase, just like the big three CEOs have received over the last four years because we know our members are worth the same and more. We also have a lot to make up for in inflation adjusted dollars. Our starting pay today is $10 an hour less than it was in 2007, 16 years ago. Mm. So we've demanded the reinstatement of cost of living adjustments to protect our future and our families against a relentless tide of inflation. What has Ford proposed? a 9% general wage increase over the life of the contract. Instead of cost of living, they've offered one-time lump sum bonuses. Companies love lump sum bonuses because they keep your base wages low, reducing your lifetime earnings. Ford's wage proposals not only fail to meet our needs, it insults our very worth. You know, we've talked a lot about how the big three CEOs saw their pay increase by 40% over the last four years, while our pay only went up by 6%. But company executives aren't the only ones making out like bandits while we fall further and further behind. At the risk of sounding like Jim Cramer on CNBC, I want to show you a chart about Ford's dividends. As you can see here, Ford has been using the profits of our labor, that our labor produces to increase the dividends they pay out to shareholders. As of today, the company is on track to reward shareholders for all of our hard work by raising their dividend payout by 150% to a whopping $5 billion in 2023. If the shareholders and CEOs are lavishing themselves with the value that we create, then it's our turn for our fair share. So that bit about the dividends is really, um, it's amazing that they're willing to do this in a contract negotiation year. You would think that they would have some amount of like discretion. You know, it's like, it's like that the test with the marshmallow and the child, right? The, where, where you leave a child in an unsupervised room with a marshmallow and what do they do with it? You know, this is Ford taking the marshmallow when if they just tried to exercise even the slightest amount of discretion uh, in this year with respect to giving money to people who don't work, (laughs) (laughs) giving money to people because they have money, uh, 
as a juxtaposition to you know their refusal to pay uh, their employee and their employees more you know it would help them a little bit right there would it, it would <laughs> but but they are giving the UAW such a layup a public relations layup by increasing dividends this year while they are trying to make UAW members accept a real wage uh, a real uh, rate wage cut. Right. Don't look over here. Don't look over here at these dividend payments and these CEO pay increases. We're gonna, we're just gonna lowball y'all. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, you'll notice that uh, uh, Sean Fain quoted the percent increase for the general wage increase, but Ford, in its statements, has said that it has given a quote generous offer that would provide employees with a fifteen percent guaranteed combined wage increase and lump sums as well as they say improved benefits uh and you know the like he said lump sums not good you don't want lump sums i in fact uh brother from (laughs) Cortland that i talk to a lot and that i have learned a lot from joe marshall uh from the uh uh, used to work at uh, the champion paper mill over there uh he said that basically how big your signing bonus is the uh, the amount of your signing bonus is uh, inversely proportional to how good the contract is. <laughs> you know, the bigger the signing bonus, the worse the contract is. So, uh, you know, don't be swayed by those lump sum bonuses. So um, here is. Uh, oh, oh. And also, you know, so there was some other stuff, right? Uh, they wanted to uh, reinstate COLA. Um you know, cost of living adjustments in the cases where, uh, you know, in case of inflation and Ford doesn't want to do that. They just want lump sums, uh, job security. Um, they <coughs> want, uh, th- they have this working families protection programs, uh, which I think is a really, really cool idea. Um, they want to increase profit sharing where Ford is proposing a 21% cut in profit sharing. Uh, and they want to, the UAW wants to increase work-life balance, reduce the work week, all of this. Ford rejected all quality of life proposals and refused to recognize Juneteenth as a paid holiday, and uh, Ford rejected all increases to retiree pay. So very not good. I just want to uh, delve on this uh, Working Families Protection Program, explain what that is for just a second, because it's very, very cool. And what that would do is require automakers that close a factory to continue paying workers to do community service or other uh, jobs that benefit the local community uh, until and unless product returns to that community. Um, which is a huge, huge uh, uh, benefit. And a uh, friend of the show, Teddy Ostro at The Upsurge, who announced a couple of weeks ago that his podcast is going to be transitioning to cover the UAW struggle. Uh, he posted on social media last week that he has been editing uh, for his most recent episode. And he said that one of the things that has gotten to him more than anything else is the degree to which the big three automakers force their employees to pick up and move across the country, uh, uproot their lives, sever connections, all of this for profit. And so this Working Families Protection Program is a really, it comes from real issues that UAW members are facing. Right. Um, I mean, there's a reason why most UAW members in Alabama are retirees. Yep. And no longer actively employed. Yep. So uh, let's see what uh, uh, let's see his reaction to all this. 
I know this update's infuriating. And believe me when I say I'm fed up. And one thing I want to tell you is this trash can is overflowing with the bullshit that the big three continue to peddle. We love a recurring character, folks, and the trash can, I think, is probably going to be making a few more <laughs> a few more appearances in these live streams. Um, so there we go, uh, rejecting the counterproposal by throwing it in the trash where it belongs, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, really disrespectful stuff coming from Ford, coming to the table asking for concessions in what the CEO says is a golden era for the company. Uh, really wild stuff. And totally contrary to a couple of people in our comments section last week who were saying that uh, the auto companies don't have the money for any of this and that they don't even make any money anymore, um, which is a fascinating thing to believe, you know, have to be totally disconnected from reality. Um but yeah, so that's where things stand right now. And I told you that I uh, had a couple of clips uh, that I really, really vibed with. Um, and those are clips where he uh, generalizes the struggle that UAW members are, f are, are going through right now with the big three automakers and talks about how, you know, this is a fight for themselves. Yes, obviously, but also a fight for the American working class and these bigger issues that we talk about during elections, thinking that voting red or blue or Democrat or Republican or green, you know, or green party <laughs> is going to fix these issues, right? That And they're really, in most cases, not. The way that you're going to fix these issues is through collective organization, is through unionization, is through f bringing your companies to heal with the, with the power of your labor. That's the most powerful weapon you have, uh, not your vote, unfortunately. Uh, but, uh, and, and so he, he talks about this, and, and he talks to us about, about the bigger picture. Let's play this clip. Like I've said many times, we are one of the most overworked populations in the world. The average worker in Germany works three months less a year than the average worker in the United States. What that shows us is that forcing workers to live paycheck to paycheck while working seven days a week for every week of the year, it's a social choice, not a necessity. You know, I heard this saying once that every billionaire is a policy failure. Truer words have never been spoken. Billionaires, in my opinion, don't have a right to exist. The very existence of billionaires shows us that we have an economy that is working for the benefit of the few and not the many. I say the same is true for poverty wages and long hours. We need to wipe them out. The labor movement once fought for vision of work life in which everyone had eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, and eight hours for recreation. Sadly, it feels like we've gone so far backwards that we have to fight just to have the 40-hour work week back. Why is that? So another asshole can make enough money to shoot himself to the moon? We need to get back fighting for a vision of society in which everyone earns family-sustaining wages and everyone has enough free time to enjoy their lives and see their kids grow up and their parents grow old. 
So there you go. Uh, Connecting these struggles to these bigger societal issues. Um, Nelson Lichtenstein on Twitter, um, prominent labor historian, said that, you know, in a lot of these areas, he sounded something like Bernie Sanders, but a lot better because he's actually got, you know, he's got people behind him and he's he's going to be able to bring, you know, the big three, <laughs> the production of the big three automakers to a halt where, you know, the most that, that Bernie could do in any given situation is, is, you know, maybe bring out some votes or something like that or support people who are doing this. But, you know, rhetoric from a union president like that uh, is something with a lot more teeth behind it than rhetoric like that from a politician. And uh, so very, very powerful stuff and and absolutely true. Because we saw the last time in American history where inequality was this bad. Uh, We look back at that period uncontroversially as bad for the vast majority of Americans, of the vast majority of the world, because of the income inequality, because of the power that was concentrated by virtue of the income and wealth inequality, the power that was concentrated in the hands of a few people, and how cancerous and corrosive that was for society. And so I think it's very, very powerful for a union president to be calling that out and to be calling for, you know, the abolition of billionaires, which does not mean, you know, uh, you know, a violent uh, that in, in a violent way, just that they shouldn't have that money, and then if they don't have that money anymore, they're not billionaires. Right? So. No, no one, <laughs> no one is entitled to a billion dollars. Mm. No one is entitled to that. Right. There was another clip that I pulled on, uh, you know, on the bigger picture. Let's play that. Our fight is not just for ourselves, but for every worker who is being undervalued, for every retiree who's given their all and feels forgotten, and for every future worker who deserves a fair chance at a prosperous life. That's why the public overwhelmingly supports us now. Like I mentioned earlier, 75% of the public supports us in our fight against the big three. That's because we're all fed up of living in a world that values profits over people. We're all fed up with seeing the rich get richer while the rest of us continue to just scrape by. We're all fed up with corporate greed. And together, we're going to fight like hell to change it. Great stuff. Yeah, I really appreciate no I really appreciate everything he, he was saying there and talking the language of class struggle. Um, yeah, I really appreciate that because it's, it's long past due that our leaders in the labor movement acknowledge reality Mm. and speak truthfully about the conditions that we're facing because to i mean to do otherwise is a disservice i think Mm. to the membership and it's not about being negative you know it's not about anything like that it's about truthfully acknowledging the conditions and the reality in which we're living and the reality in which we all experience we can see it with our own eyes nothing he said is untrue right you know, and so I appreciate him speaking to the broader working class. Um, I hope the broader working class hears this message. And I, I think, you know, it's important to get this message out to as many working class people as possible. Mm. That the more we can, the more we can join together, the stronger we are, and the greater the chance we can do something to change all of this. 
because this isn't acceptable. We don't have to live this way. It doesn't have to be this way where a few wealthy, powerful elites dominate and control society and our economy. You know, we can do better as a country, as a species. We can do better, mm. but it's going to take everyday working people joining together and uniting across some of our divisions and uniting around our common interests. Because we all want to be able to take care of ourselves and our families and have time for ourselves and our families, you know, live a fully productive life, live up to our potential, have a community, you know, a, a community that takes care of one another. That's that's what we all want. So I really appreciate, you know, what the UAW is doing. I appreciate their fights to end two tiers, to and the the damage that outsourcing has done to so many families across this country. Uh, so sending my love and solidarity to the UAW. Absolutely. Uh, we have uh, one more caller on the line uh, called in while we were talking about the UAW. So uh, we'll go ahead and take that caller, and then that'll be it for us today. We went... Uh, pretty significantly longer than normal. Uh, but, you know, there was a lot to talk about, and we had a little a little more time today than maybe we do some other Saturdays. So, uh, like I said, we've got a caller on the line. The caller is from a 323 area code. Uh, so let's bring them on the air. 323 area code. What is your name, Hello? and where are you calling from? Hello, my name is Joe. I'm calling from Southern Nevada. Joe from sunny Nevada. What's on your mind? Uh, just a few things. Uh, first of all, I want to shout out the UAW for their uh, continued uh, public fight with the Big Three. Been a long time coming for them. Uh, I also wanted to address a few things out of the UPS contract. Uh, the solidarity amongst all workers from con like the announcement of the end of the contract and all of the, you know, support from every other union that we got, it was really appreciated. And it mm. was like, it was felt throughout like the entirety of the United States from Western region to Eastern region. And now seeing the transition go from one very public company to three other very like heavily influenced companies in our lives, this is going to be a major and very public uh, thing to experience and view because it's been a while since we've had a labor movement this strong in the auto industry. Right. Mm -hmm. right. That was mostly what I wanted to say and, you know, just say like, they kind of deserve it. Like after yeah. the regulations that are coming out and the transitions that are bound to happen from ice to electric and battery technologies and all of this, the major thing for the workers is going to have to be the safety, the wages, and just mostly the protections that they're looking for. Because why are you going to work 70 hours a week for low tier pay? when you could just McDonald's or UPS it for 
you know, the wage that you feel you deserve. Hmm. Yep, exactly right. And I'm not going to knock, like, UAW workers for wanting more because obviously they deserve it. Like, the although it seems that the auto industry is dying off, it's still a very important industry for us because, we, like, we see... We see Chevy, we see Ford, we see everything every day from our day to day. So it's not, you know, it's not like it's a silent fight. It's it's going to be mm. prominent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think really... a lot of people are, are seeing it. Yeah. I think a lot of people are witnessing it, and, and it is inspiring people um, to think about their own lives and their own workplaces. Absolutely. And, you know, I, and I don't actually know that, you know, the, the auto industry is dying. Uh, you know, like, like we've said in our UAW coverage, the big three have literally actually never made more profit in their history, in the history of these companies. It's uh, one of those, I think it's, so. it's one of those like uh, illusion type, right. type issues where um, people say it and it gets mm-hmm. discussed and thrown about and, and then there's maybe a certain in- intuition about it. Um, but then, yeah, we, we see these profit statements and it's like, right. whoa, whoa, right. there's, you know, there's life left. Right. Absolutely. Uh, Joe from sunny Nevada. Appreciate your call. Thank you. Appreciate you for having me on. Thank you. Absolutely. Yep. All right. Well, folks, that's going to wrap it up for us today. Appreciate you hanging out with us for an extra long show this weekend. Uh, make sure that you tune in to the Dale Jackson show. Monday morning, 7 to 8 a.m. with your oh, guest Now host, you have to. Um, Jacob Morrison. Yep. Yeah, I have, uh, I've got Joe working on, you know, Dale has this, uh, this logo um, of him, you know, like a stylized version of his head. And so I'm having Joe uh, customize it to make it look like me. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> and, nice and, and yeah, and we're gonna um and when we clip the uh segments from Monday's show uh for our YouTube channel, we're gonna have that on the screen. <laughs> so, okay. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, there you go. All right, folks. Uh for those of you who are in Huntsville, uh I'll s- l- talk to you live on Monday morning. Uh you'll be able to hear that uh later on in the week. And for everybody else, uh, Adam is going to see you Thursday morning. Do you know what you're going to be talking about on Shop Talk this week? No, I do not. Mm. Um, I've got several ideas that I'm cooking up, and I've reached out to a couple different folks. And so we will see what happens. Um, I've had a couple requests for segments also. Mm. Um, And so I've reached out to some people kind of in response to that to see. Okay. If I can make that happen. So, yeah, we'll see. Um, there are a couple of events uh, that I wanted to shout out before we dip out of here. Mm. Uh, yeah. Labor Notes, of course, has some great online trainings. Um, I'm going to always shout them out because they're there and you should take advantage of them. And if you've never done that, why not? Mm. Uh, because you can sharpen your skill set. You can learn. Um, you'll pick something up from it. You know, even... I know the networking is not as great through a Zoom, uh, obviously, but still, you know, you never know who you might run into uh, and might connect with. And so it's really, uh, those are great opportunities. And a couple of the ones they have coming up in September, they do have a live uh, workshop in Atlanta 
and um, online they have dealing with difficult supervisors, what to do when your union breaks your heart, um, as well as secrets of a successful organizer. So definitely check those out. Um, on September 14th through the 16th, the second annual Huntsville Human Rights Film Festival will take place at UAH campus. Uh, and on Saturday, after the show, I'm going to head on over there and check it out. Um, have a table out, I'm sure. And um, yeah, there's going to be some good conversations about mental health, policing, environmental health, food insecurity. Uh, I know Debbie from Cover Alabama will be there to talk about Medicaid expansion, so it should be a good event. And uh, earlier this morning, we spoke with historian Blair L.M. Kelly, and I wanted to shout out a little session she is doing with the Zen Education Project. Also friends of the show, Jesse Hagopian uh, is going to be hosting a, a little class that she is going to teach basically on uh, a people's history of the black working class. So if you want to you know, dive a little bit deeper, if you are intrigued by uh, the interview this morning, if you're going to go pick up the book, uh, definitely check this out. You can go to the Zen Education Project and um, you can find that that class. It's, it's in there. They have a whole series. They do a class like this every month uh, with different cool historians and writers and uh, activists. And so, um, yeah, I just want to lift that up. All right. All right. Talk to you next week, folks. Solidarity, y'all.